done. Okay. So I remember uh, in college watching that movie, The Patriot. It's weird thinking about how long ago that was, actually. 2000. It's almost 25 years ago. Uh, the one starring Mel Gibson about the Revolutionary War, and there's a scene where the uh, they kind of bust into the church. There's a service going on. The pastor's there. He's got all of his pastoral garb on, and they are looking for militia volunteers, and he's not happy about them doing that at that time. But then later, he's able to go outside, and he's able to take off his religious vestments and put on his common farmer's hat and volunteer himself, and doesn't have a problem with that once the service is over. And so today's chapter, 24, is about that kind of thing. How does a Christian rightly divide his allegiances, if that's even the way to put it? Uh, but in other words, how does a Christian live as both a temporary citizen of the kingdoms of and people of this world, and also as an, ex- an eternal citizen of the kingdom of heaven? Um, So, for instance, we're soon to enter another election season over the next year or so. And so what should a follower of Christ care about in that process and also once the winners have been declared? How do we do that? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we think? In other words, how do we as Christians relate to governments and kings and presidents and congresses and courts and parliaments while properly maintaining our allegiance to Christ, the King of kings and Lord of lords? And so there is so much to this topic that there's no way to do anything but an overview. But the first thing we probably need to do is uh, review a few other doctrinal realities, some of the things that we've already talked about in the confession that's all going to come together and matter a whole lot when we start laying out this particular doctrine on the civil magistrate. Um, so let's remind ourselves of some of those things, and I'm going to assume them when we get to the chapter. So as far as confessionally, uh, there's a context there. We've talked about the threefold division of the law. In particular, in chapter 19, uh, paragraph 4, we talked about the abrogation of the Old Covenant judicial laws, that God gave Old Covenant Israel, quote, sundry judicial laws which expired together with the state of that people, not obliging any now by virtue of that institution, their general equity only being of moral use. So that's a reference to... Uh, what we've called the moral law, uh, which is the Ten Commandments, that is eternal, that tells us about God's uh, holiness and his character, and it's written on our hearts, and we call that moral law written on our hearts as image bearers on the hearts of all men, natural law. And that's as opposed to what we call positive laws, which is the things like the civil and the ceremonial laws given to Old Covenant Israel, but it's other things like the tree in the garden for Adam, um, and for us as New Covenant believers, it's baptism, the Lord's Supper, and the Lord's Day. So um, we also talked about Christian liberty in chapter 21, especially paragraph 2 there. God alone is Lord of the conscience and has left it free from the doctrines and commandments of men which are in anything contrary to his word or not contained in it. Uh, In other words, no one gets to tell you what your conscience is bound to except for God. And that's really the section that we're in, in general. And so as we come to this doctrine on the civil magistrate, we are also talking about Christian liberty. In chapters 22 and 23, we talked about worship, that is the regulative principle of worship, and our day of rest, that's the Lord's Day, the Christian Sabbath. And then now we're on 24, we're talking about the civil realm and how we conduct ourselves in it as Um, citizens of another world, another kingdom. Um, So there's a historical context there, too. Uh, Talk about 16th century, 17th century England. We're talking about persecution from the government, especially of people like Baptists. We might call them nonconformists. They weren't the only ones. But the Act of Uniformity in 1558, which was again renewed in 1662, prescribed worship set worship for all people from the Anglican State Church who were in England under the authority of the head cleric or the archbishop and the reigning monarch, being its supreme governor. So you can see the cross over there already. Uh, The Baptist Confession was written and published first in 1677, but redistributed in 1689, the year that the Toleration Act was passed, 
This made it legal in England to practice as a Protestant outside of the Anglican Church as long as individuals took an oath of allegiance to the government, which Baptists had no problem with. They're, some of their Anabaptist, um, I don't even know, friends, maybe that's the word, I don't know. Uh, contemporaries. Contem- sure, contemporaries, there you go. Uh, they would have had problems with it like we talked about last time when we talked about uh, lawful oaths and vows. Um, but... Against the Anabaptists, any of them had a problem making oaths since most believed that all oaths were in fact sinful. Some wanted the church to live completely separate from the secular authorities and the rest of the world. Others turned to violence even, thinking that they could establish something of an eschatological kingdom that way. Um, And others, of course, there's, well, there's degrees and variation among those who hold each of the opposing views here, but generally speaking, Baptists confessed against utter separation of church and state and the human abolishing of one or the other. So let me explain. But first, against Romanism, Baptists confessed against the church ruling the state. In many ways, Romanism presumed a joint rule of pope and emperor over the unified Christian society. Uh, which the emperor is still expected to submit to the pope in all spiritual matters. Of course, when the emperor is given spiritual duties, it becomes clear who really has the power there. And if something is deemed spiritual when it is likely, or when it likely shouldn't be, you can imagine how that leads to religious power being civil power. And often, kings and magistrates didn't like this, and things seemed to go the other way, where civil power became spiritual or ecclesiastical power. This was unacceptable to Protestants, but especially to us Baptists. Uh, Also against the English Presbyterians, and as we've already talked about, our Anglican contemporaries, um, Baptists confessed against the state ruling the church. Uh, Again, already talked about the Anglicans, but the, the original Westminster Confession of Faith, which was written in 1646 by the Presbyterians, included in its chapter on the civil magistrate things the Baptists also couldn't abide, and you'll see primarily that the magistrate ought to maintain piety, quote-unquote, and, quote, has authority, and it is his duty to take order that unity and peace be preserved in the church that the truth of God be kept pure and entire, that all blasphemies and heresies be suppressed, all corruptions and abuses in worship and discipline prevented or reformed, and all the ordinances of God duly settled, administered, and observed, for the better effecting whereof he has power to call synods, to be present at them, and to provide that whatsoever is transacted in them be according to the mind of God." It's a lot of spiritual power for a civil magistrate to have. The American Revision of the Westminster, published in 1788, changed this and essentially agreed that the Baptists were right, even if they didn't say that part out loud. All of this, the Baptists represented, uh, all of this for us Baptists represented flaws in both those other folks' covenant theology and adequately distinguished civil and ecclesiastical duty and authority. So, anyway, it's more than just us nitpicking at preferences. Rightfully so, the Baptists recognized that in this world, wicked men would always behave outwardly the way they need to in order to gain power civilly. Therefore, apart from not being any warrant in Scripture for it, the Baptists were unwilling to allow the name of Christ to be a tool for evil men to seek political power. So just to summarize that section, the Baptists were instead advocating for a real relationship between church and state, each ruling its God-ordained sphere of responsibility and not overstepping into the other. We as Christians then are members of both, one temporarily and the other eternally. So there's a biblical context as well. Uh, I won't read through all the scripture references, but You'll have it there in the handout. Uh, There's a pre-fall old creation context here. Adam's creation mandate and the covenant of works. Adam already having natural law written on his heart as God's image bearer is given a mandate about his stewardship of creation. That is, be fruitful and multiply and 
take dominion over all the earth, that is, spread the Edenic temple over all of creation. And he was given the covenant of works with the promise of eternal life for obedience and the threat of death for, obe- for disobedience concerning not eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's important to this discussion that we remind ourselves that the covenant of works in the garden was in no way a covenant of grace, but instead one of works, and only works. It may have been a kind thing for God to give Adam this covenant opportunity, but the substance and the fulfillment of that covenant was entirely a matter matter of Adam's works of obedience or disobedience. So then, of course, we fall in Genesis 3, and we have a post-fall old creation to deal with. And all of the curses that came with the violation of the covenant of works were brought upon Adam and all of his natural progeny, us included. And we know that in time, quote, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. It was chaos. There was no order. With the covenant of works permanently broken and its reward forever forfeited, a replacement creation covenant was needed that fit the post-fall context of mankind. And so along comes Noah. And so Noah gets a mandate and covenant of preservation. God gave Noah a covenant after the flood. He was a kind of second Adam who was over a kind of new creation. But since things were and are not as they should be at this point, God's covenant was not about reward or punishment because that was lost, but about preservation and the restraining of evil. So God gives Noah a similar mandate to Adam's that he be fruitful and multiply, but this time, no longer is there an instruction to take dominion. Humanity's stewardship of creation remains, but now instead there are expectations of things like capital punishment for murder and the restraining of wildlife so that they don't eat us and they fear us instead. They don't wipe us out and the promise that God won't destroy all of creation again until the very end. In other words, a restraining of man and of creation in order to preserve it until the appointed purpose is fulfilled and it is then destroyed. And that covenant still stands today. The civil government is a product of the Noahic covenant and is applicable to all mankind, not just Christians. Therefore, it is a covenant of common grace, not redeeming grace. Of course, we have the new creation inaugurated in Jesus Christ. We have Christ's covenant of redemption accomplished. That is, in his life, death, and especially his resurrection, Jesus, as the true and better and the last Adam, has brought the kingdom of God, or heaven, with him to earth. Where he is, the kingdom is, and especially so, in that upon his resurrection, he has accomplished, earned, and was the first fruits of or beginning of the new creation. Christ's covenant of grace also gets applied, uh, being ascended and seated as king over the new creation, he is where his spirit is, that is, in his church. The church, being in Christ, is the physical expression of the new creation kingdom of God here on earth, but we are not destined to stay here. We are strangers, aliens, foreigners, sojourners. And then we have Christ's great commission in Matthew 28, of course. We are ambassadors of an embassy currently in Babylon. We are the instruments and heralds of our king to bring in and adopt new citizens of his kingdom from out of Babylon. And one day we will see the new creation consummated. We know that one day our king will come and all that is old will be destroyed by him and all that is new will be eternally and immutably established. We see no civil government or magistrate there because there is no need. Sin is gone. There's nothing to preserve or restrain that will fall apart if they're not. Everything is as it should be. Our king is perfectly obeyed in the new creation consummated. All right, so that's a good amount of material for starting. It's important because the rest of this probably wouldn't make a lot of sense if we didn't say it. And we have said it, but we're repeating. 
So paragraph one of chapter 24, we begin by talking about divine order of the civil magistrate. Paragraph one says, God, the supreme Lord and king of the whole world, has ordained civil authorities to be under him and over the people for his own glory and the public good. For this purpose, he has armed them with the power of the sword to defend and encourage those who do good and to punish evildoers. So God is supreme, ordains all civil authorities to their office with a few things, starting with position and the position to rule under him. Daniel 4, 25, the most high rules over the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he wills. Proverbs 21, 1, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Proverbs 16, 12, it is an abomination to or for kings to do evil. The throne is established by righteousness. In John 19:11, the first part, Jesus says to Pontius Pilate, "You would have no authority over me at all unless it were given to you from above." So before any statement is made in the confession, the first thing that the confession wants us to know is that God is supreme, and as supreme, he has ordained civil authorities for his glory and for our good. And so if you remember from chapter 3 on first and second causes, then we've already affirmed that God ordains but is not responsible for the actions of even evil men for his glory and the good of the saints. Human government is not ultimately established by the consent of the governed, the will of the majority, or some social contract, but by the design and the will of God. In this way, the Godhead rules over the natural kingdom or common creation by providence. And Christ rules the mediatorial kingdom or the church here and in heaven as the incarnate God-man by redemptive grace. The kingdom of God is, as Graham Goldsworthy has said, God's people in God's place under God's rule. Christ's place is in the new creation, which right now is in heaven. And in his saints, or people, both dead and alive, This union with him is through the Holy Spirit, and we are submissive to him willfully out of devotion for that reason, mixed as it may be here and perfect as it is in heaven. Sometimes Baptists are caricatured as so separating church and state that we deny God's lordship and sovereignty over the civil sphere. That is shown immediately in the confession to be false, that may be an Anabaptist sentiment, but it's not ever been what the Baptists believe, nor should we. The confession is not here teaching a separation of state from God. In fact, it may even be better instead of speaking of separation of church, instead of speaking of separation of church and state, to say separation of powers and duties, each institution having its own and not the others. God does rule the civil sphere according to his law, that is, natural law. God has also given the civil magistrate to rule over us, the people. Romans 13, which we'll we'll go through multiple times here today, but the first two verses, let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there's no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Paul is writing this under the rule of Emperor Nero in Rome. Nero is famous for being especially cruel to Christians. He blamed the Christians for the fires that destroyed large sections of Rome that he wanted to tear down and rebuild because we didn't worship the gods, and so they were supposedly angry at us and did that to Rome. And Nero would apparently burn Christians later to light his garden parties. This is not, by any means, a Christian state. So when Paul says all this, he has that kind of regime in mind. And this is not a man, right, that we would call Nero, that is, righteous or just in his rule, and yet Paul commands respect and submission all the same. We should not disrespect or resist the civil authorities no matter how much we dislike them or their policies. Now, if you noticed, Paul also uses the word for be subject rather than the word for obey, and that's intentional. 
There are three words in the New Testament that can be translated as obedience, and Paul could have used or chose any of them. Instead, he chose a different word, the one for be subject. There are times when obedience to the civil magistrate is not right, depending on what's being commanded. We'll discuss civil, obedience, civil disobedience in paragraph 3. Let's also establish right now that our allegiance to Christ always overrides our allegiance to the civil magistrate. Additionally, Paul is writing while a number of violent Jewish revolts were occurring in opposition to Rome, the rebellion would eventually be the reason Jerusalem and the temple were destroyed in 70 AD. The Romans won their authority, of course, as a nation or as an empire by conquest. And it was run by dictators and the leadership was corrupt. Some of these ethnic Jews were also now Christians. So Paul is telling them not to participate in such things. So also, God has given the civil magistrate purpose, the first being for his glory. As we know, all things good and evil ultimately work toward this end, whether in the saving of the elect or in the judgment of the preterations. And these things are for our good. That is the good of the public, of humanity at large, of the populace, Christians included. Romans 13 again, the first half of verse 3, For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Again, per the Noahic Covenant, God has given us the civil magistrate to restrain evil in this world and preserve it until he gathers all the elect and Christ has returned in glory. For this we should be thankful. The magistrate's duty to do good to those who do good is as essential to his office as his authority. And so God has also given the civil magistrate power. And we talk about that power as that of the sword. Uh, that's the symbol of that authority. He is a servant, an avenger for God. A sword is an instrument of violence. It represents the authority God has given the magistrate over civil matters and nothing else. The sword has absolutely no ecclesiastical authority whatsoever. Just like the church holding the authority of the keys to the kingdom of heaven has absolutely no civil authority whatsoever. The church is to submit to God's ordained civil authorities for the sake of God and the gospel, and the state should simply ensure that we are free to worship according to our Bible-bound consciences. Sam Waldron says this, Swords are not used to train children or to discipline unrepentant professing Christians. They are suitable to suppress violent crimes and public injustice. Government, then, is a legal force. And Augustine said that civil government is a necessary evil made necessary because of evil, and that's right. The magistrate is also meant to defend and encourage good. The sword can also be used for the good of those who do social and civil good by defending them and promoting and incentivizing their good behavior. It's also meant to punish and discourage evil, no more, no less. Romans 13, 3 and 4 again, Would you have no fear of the one who is in authority? Then do what is good, and you will receive his approval, for he is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. Unbelievers can see a magistrate, and they can fear him, even though they don't see God, and they hate him. In that way, God still restrains them. We have this concept of lex talionis, an eye for an eye. Uh, this principle of proportionality and restitution, that punishment should fit the crimes. This is a limited justice because of its limited source. It's partial, anticipatory of the greater judgment to come, and it's provisional. Uh, Oliver Almond Smith's little book, he says, in acknowledging partial justice, there is a wise recognition of the state's limitations so that expectations are not too high. By highlighting anticipatory justice, all are caused to look forward to the greater day to come when all miscarriages and shortcomings of justice in this age are put right. And by recognizing provisional justice, every citizen can be contented and satisfied in the assurance that full and final justice 
will be done at the last day. It's the only reason we as Christians can be at peace amongst unjust rulers and men. Okay, paragraph two. We see the believer's participation as the civil magistrate. It says, Christians may lawfully accept and carry out the duties of public office when called to do so. In performing their office, they must especially maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of each kingdom or other political entity. To carry out these duties, they are authorized now under the New Testament to wage war in just and necessary situations. So for some of us, it may seem odd that the confession would need to address such a thing, but remember that there were people running around calling themselves Christians who also said that serving as a magistrate was sin and that working for the civil government could even be satanic or serving an antichrist. Some also claiming that not removing yourself from civil society is wrong. But as we'll see, God's instruction to Israel was not to topple Babylon, but to seek its good, and that would be for their good. Paul himself, as a Roman citizen, had no problem making an appeal to Caesar. See Acts 25. Not only this, but the lack of political engagement and instruction in the New Testament is simply deafening in its silence. So we may never add to Scripture We should be very careful not to when it comes to this topic, as tempting as it may be. Also, Christian civil magistrates may, and they must, first uphold an ethical standard that is maintain justice and peace. 2 Samuel 23, the God of Israel has spoken. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of God, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning, like rain that makes grass to sprout from the earth. That's a good thing. So appropriately gifted Christians of all people should be the best at blessing the civil realm with justice and peace. And I say appropriately gifted because there are very godly mature Christians who would be terrible magistrates and a skilled unbeliever who upholds natural law may in fact be better for the job at times. This isn't a spiritual office, just like many jobs aren't spiritual jobs, and so there are non-Christians who do them better than we do. Sam Waldron again says, It is certainly true that civil authority is subject to the word of God, speaking of natural law. But this does not mean that it is the duty of the civil authority to enforce every part of God's word with his own authority. And just as an example, I would rather have a really skilled engineer build the bridges I drive over than an unskilled one who's a godly person but would never have the aptitude to fill that role because God didn't knit him or her together that way. We don't tolerate the civil authority parenting our children, not because they aren't subject to God and his word, but because the civil authority isn't a father or a mother. The same is true for the role of a pastor and the function of the church. And again, at this point, the Presbyterians had not only said that the duty of the Christians serving as civil magistrate is to maintain justice and purity, but they also included to maintain piety among the people of the nation. The Baptists rightfully identified this, that is piety, as an improper conflation of sword and keys, and therefore they removed that term from the confession. Uh, The civil magistrate is also given special priorities. That is, according to wholesome laws, they are to rule. We could simply read according to natural law if we wanted to say it that way, especially though that part of natural law that has to do with loving our neighbor. Government doesn't legislate or deal in our relationship and loving God, other than ensuring that we can do so freely. Instead, the civil government should enact laws that seek the welfare of the community, and those should be according to the second table of the law, the love your neighbor commands, commandments uh, 5 through 10. Psalm 82 says, Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. That's what it looks like for us to do that job. 
And Paul goes on to speak of the law in Romans 13, 8 through 10. In this context, that is about civil magistrate, he lists the second table, love your neighbor commands, and none of the other ones. Notice also that the confession and the Bible don't give exact instructions, endorsements, or mandates about setting up only one particular form of government. And that's also intentional. Uh, The civil magistrate is also uh, given solemn prerogatives. That is, they are waging only just and necessary wars. Notice here how when John the Baptist in Luke 3 is asked by some soldiers working for the government what they should do given his call to repentance. He doesn't say, stop working for the government. Instead, he says this, soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. It was a call to be good soldiers, not to stop being soldiers. In other words, they don't have to stop being soldiers, that is, men who make war for a living. And literally, they bear the sword. But they must fulfill their job with righteousness and contentment. It's a high calling to be God's ministers of peace and justice among the people, and we should take it seriously. Jesus essentially does the same thing in Matthew 8, including with the tax collectors, Peter also with Cornelius in Acts 10, and there are plenty of examples of godly men and women in the Bible who work for foreign civil governments and are never spoken of as being in sin for doing so. Think Joseph in Egypt, Daniel, Esther, even David at one point. Zacchaeus, Cornelius, and the list could go on. Now, paragraph three, we're going to talk about believers' submission to the civil authority, the civil magistrate. Here again, the Baptists say more by saying less. They condense two long paragraphs into one short paragraph, with some obvious omissions that our Pado Baptist brothers and sisters would eventually change in their confessions to match the Baptist sentiment. And again, that's because our covenant theology works out our view of a number of things that push us to some of these particular conclusions. So in that way, the Pado-Baptists are admitting we're right, but their covenant theology is inconsistent with what's correct. Uh, The first half of three, because civil authorities are established by God for the purposes stated, we should submit in the Lord to them in everything lawful, that they require. We should submit not only for fear of punishment, but also for the sake of conscience. So it is the believer's duty to obey the civil magistrate. First, by divine establishment and purposes. Again, those purposes being to maintain justice and peace according to the wholesome laws of whatever contextually relevant civil government they find themselves in. Romans 13 again, 5 through 7. Therefore, one must be in subjection, not only to avoid God's wrath, but also for the sake of conscience. For because of this, you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. So we are people who are submitting. Titus 3, Paul says, Remind them, that is the Christians, there to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy toward all people. And then First Peter 2, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be the emperor as supreme or to governors. So recalling again those Jewish revolts that we previously mentioned, how did Israel come out of captivity the first time from Babylon? God gave them favor with the king and he returned them to their land and let them rebuild it. It was not by human violence, but by trust in the divine. We are also to obey 
or to submit within righteous limits, that is, lawful ones. Acts 5, we hear this. They, that is the Jewish authorities there, set Peter and the apostles before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charged you not to teach in the name of Jesus. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, famously, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. So the question becomes then, is there ever a place for civil disobedience? It seems that there is. Here is an example of one of the same apostles who tells us to obey the authorities himself disobeying them. In the next section, we'll discuss how a Christian should go about participating in civil disobedience, but this is a complicated matter. We can say at least this. To obey God is more important than obeying men. When any God-ordained authority functions apart from God's law by commanding its subjects to do what God clearly forbids or forbids us to do what God clearly requires, then we have not just a right but an obligation to disobey. A criminal magistrate is to be resisted in its criminal demands and actions, but just because a law is unjust to inflict doesn't necessarily mean it's sinful to obey. In those cases, we submit. Uh, in the book of Daniel, chapters three, excuse me, 1, 3, and 6, we see a number of great examples of civil disobedience, including Daniel himself and his friends Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men were respectful in all things and obedient in all things until they were asked to disobey God, namely in their worship and their prayer. Spiritual matters. I can't remember where I got this list anymore, but there's something of a short summary of our duties to the civil magistrate. Uh, this is one, two, three, four, five, six things. First, we must submit in all civil matters, even when authority is misused. We must pay their tributes and taxes. We must give them due reverence. We must not conform to their established religion. And this does not include submission in all religious matters, and it does not include sinning. These are the things we must and should not do. We do this to avoid punishment, but especially we do this for a pure conscience. The fear of punishment is for all men, Christians or not, but a pure conscience in this area is the higher calling of a Christian. Second Peter 2, again, is sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. That's the job of the civil magistrate, for this is the will of God, that by doing good you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honor everyone. Love the brotherhood. Fear God. Honor the emperor. And so... Given that this is such a weighty matter, the second half of three says we ought to make requests and prayers for kings and everyone in authority, so that under their rule we may live a quiet and peaceful life in all godliness and honesty. So it is the believer's duty to pray for the civil magistrate. First, for peaceful and quiet lives. First Timothy 2. First of all, then, I urge this, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. And again, mentioning the uh, Israelites in Babylon as they sojourn there, Jeremiah 29, he tells them, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf for in its welfare, you will find your welfare. 
We're to do this also with godliness and honesty. There is a place, I think, for imprecatory prayers made against civil authorities. See again Daniel and Acts that we spoke of before, but our general demeanor toward our rules, rulers seems that it must be for their good. Our call from Jesus is to love even our enemies and to pray for those who persecute us. Here's an example also of Paul speaking one way and then changing it once he realizes who he's talking to. Talking to. So pay attention, Acts 23, 1 through 5. And looking intently at the council, Paul's been arrested here, Paul said, Brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall. Are you sitting to judge me according to the law and yet contrary to the law? That is the moral law. You order me to be struck? Those who stood by said, Would you revile God's high priest? And notice, And Paul said, I did not know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He changed his tune when that fact came out. How then should Christians engage in civil disobedience? With respect for their God-ordained position. Paul could have even made the case that Ananias, the high priest, was illegitimate in his position because that now belongs to Christ alone, and therefore he's trying to usurp Christ's mediatorial office. In a way, that glorifies Christ with honesty concerning our disobedience and truth in our criticisms, we disobey. Not in unruly or provocative or quarrelsome ways, even if they are public religious displays. All right, and finally, we have some application. Let's talk for a minute about sword versus keys. The unique authority of the keys, and we'll talk about this when we get to the chapter on the church. If you look at Matthew 16, particularly 13 through 20, then you go to Matthew 18, 15 through 20, and then go to Matthew 28, 16 through 20, we see that the keys are in fact the gospel and that the church is the one that holds the authority to open the kingdom, to bind and to loose. That is a purely ecclesiastical and spiritual authority. In the new covenant in Christ, these things bring a new creation kingdom that's eternal. Jesus answered, again, my kingdom is not of this world. This is often a word of contempt, like this thing, when he uses it here. Um, So my kingdom is not of this world. It's a reference to the present material universe and its present order. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. In Mark 12, he says, Render to Caesar, that is the civil magistrate, the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And apparently that made people marvel at him. And then in Ephesians 6, of course, Paul tells us what kind of battle we're fighting. For we, that is Christians, do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So therefore we are to take up the whole armor of God. The kingdom of God, that is, the disciples of Christ, his church, do not wage temporal war as the church. The civil magistrate wages temporal war, and they are not the same thing. Again, Christians as ambassadors and the church as an embassy is the way that we speak of that. Those are our roles while we're here in a foreign land waiting. Uh, There's the unique authority of the sword as well. Going back to the Noahic covenant, which preserves and maintains a good but broken creation that will pass away. 
The sword is, as David Van Drunen says, legitimate but provisional, common but accountable. That is, legitimate because it's from God, provisional because it's temporary and limited, common because it applies to all of humanity, and accountable to God at the end of things. And so we as Christians are instead foreigners, sojourners, aliens, strangers. We wander in this place that is not our home country. Hebrews 11, for Abraham as a wandering foreigner in the promised land was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. As it is, Christians also desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. So even as far back as Abraham, the goal was never a kingdom that was part of this world. This place is Babylon, and we're called by God to wander here as foreigners for a time. We seek its temporal good, and in it find our temporal good. But it is destined to fall. More important is rescuing people from it and seeing them transformed into children of Abraham by faith. So now we come to the section on common errors. And John, I don't know if you want to be more a part of this one, but I'll get started on it and you can jump in as you see fit. I'm going to speak very broadly here because there are just so many ways these things can manifest, some more and some less problematic than others. So come speak to any of your elders, including myself, if you have questions uh, at any point. But the first error we might talk about is we might call literalism. So the main point here, I'm going to focus on the Great Commission because that is the job of the church. And so in no way does the Great Commission or our faithfulness as believers hinge upon our relationship to the current nation state in the Middle East today called Israel. Because what we might call a literalistic method of reading the Bible, some have misunderstood God's covenants and development of redemptive history, and it's resulted in this particular error. Since Christ has dissolved the old covenant and never meant for it to be its own end, but to instead point to him, in no way is favor from God dependent upon or localized to a Middle Eastern nation called Israel today, and those who support or bless that nation. That nation and ethnic people is not Old Covenant Israel. They have no standing nationally or ethnically in any covenant with God, unless they are actual New Covenant Christians, and then they have the New Covenant. But it has nothing to do with nations or ethnicity or location or any of that. Uh, The second error would be something we might call transformationalism. And the error being, in no way does the Great Commission include transformation or Christianizing of the culture at large. Now, what we're not saying here is that we don't want good Christian ethical laws. We're not saying that we don't want God's law to bear weight on the culture. We're not saying that we don't want institutions to be more righteous. Uh, This is all true. We as Christians all want those things, but in no way does the Great Commission include those things. So every Christian should care that God is honored as much as possible and appropriately. We should be concerned about the direction of the culture at large and agree that commitment to Christian ethics is best, and we absolutely should be the greatest champions of justice as it truly is. In other words, we desire that culture would be transformed in truth, justice, and peace. But those things are absolutely not the Great Commission. They are the responsibility of individual Christians as people who love a God of truth, love, and justice, but it is not what the institutional church is called to. But that doesn't mean that transforming the culture is somehow redemptive, right? Or brings in the kingdom of God, like you just said. The kingdom is a new creation reality, not an old one. We're not turning the old one into the new one. 
in that way. And again, natural law is God's law. And unbelievers will keep it to varying degrees as his image bearers. They're not as bad as they could be. Though never from their heart, right? It's not something they do because they worship God or they revere him or they live for his glory. So Christianizing a person's ethics will do temporal good, but doesn't change hearts or establish the kingdom like we just said. That belongs to the church and discipleship, including evangelism. Okay, the third one is something you might call dominionism, uh, which include things like theonomy, Christian reconstruction, some forms of Christian nationalism, things like this. And so the point with this one is, in no way does the Great Commission include transformation or Christianizing of the civil government, nor is it dependent upon our faithfulness to the law, especially those abrogated old covenant judicial laws or the fulfillment of the original creation mandate given to Adam in the garden, which we believe was permanently lost in Genesis 3. We are not picking up where Adam left off. Instead, Christ is the last Adam, and the new creation is what we're after. I'm going to spend a little more time explaining this one, uh, too, because it has made more inroads into the theological circles that churches like ours are more readily associated with or related to. Um, There are those who would say this error is compatible with our confession, but I think it should be obvious at this point, if you've been listening for any amount of time, that's just simply not a tenable conclusion for a number of reasons. Uh, one other issue to keep in mind is that since we, excuse me, since as we've said, our theology is a system that connects rather than just being a bag of theological marbles, we have to consider the farther reaching ramifications of accepting such a notion. For certain reasons, especially, the thought leaders of this camp tend to also have a bad track record of getting aspects of justification wrong. And I think that has to do with the ways dominionism can have a tendency to inappropriately confuse and mix law with gospel. And that we have to make a big deal about. That goes beyond third tier matters, depending on how far you're going, of course. Um, The next one would be the social gospel. And the problem here is that in no way is the Great Commission the transformation of earthly social institutions and systems. Uh, This is the idea that the gospel means deliverance from temporal suffering, often into prosperity and earthly happiness or systemic political deliverance. This can be more individually in the form of the prosperity gospel. Uh, It can be more collective and institutional, like in liberation theology, and to some degree, accepting things like critical race theory into the way some see God, justice, and the gospel. Um, We can talk about passivism or quietism. Uh, The problem there is that in no way does the Great Commission or our faithfulness as a church depend upon total separation from the world, refusing to engage in all functions of the sword or in retreating from cultural and political engagement. As we've discussed, this can be removing oneself from the public into sectarian Christian huddles, or it can be something like throwing your hands in the air and choosing not to engage in politics or the civil sphere because we're all polishing brass on a sinking ship anyway, or because that's just not what Christians are primarily here to do, so why do it at all, or any number of other reasons. These are all of them misunderstandings, as you said earlier, of the mission of the church. The main issues, again, that we have to press the hardest on being this conflating or mixture of law and gospel uh, that just confuses everything and, as you can see, will get us off track in so many ways. So obviously there could be, there's many more positions, there's much nuance, so I'm, I'm saying all of this and realizing that Uh, you may be listening to this and notice something that you think we didn't cover, and I get that. Uh, But for sake of brevity, 
Um, a few books you might consider reading, and then we'll just see if Jono has anything else. Uh, Politics After Christendom by David Van Drunen would be a wonderful uh, start here. Probably the the best of the bu- of the bunch here. Um, Yeah, sure. If you want a easier start than his book on his intro, his primer on two kingdom. Living in God's two kingdoms. Yes, uh, would be a good start, kind of prime the pump. But anyway, um, Broken Wharf has put out a small little primer on this chapter of the Confession by Oliver Allman Smith called "Under God Over the People," uh, and I put a link for this in uh, the notes, but the Journal of IRBS in 2014, one of the articles was by Ronald Baines called Separating God's Two Kingdoms. There's a lot of good historical stuff there to explain why we're not the Anabaptists, Mm -hmm. among other things, and how this is the two kingdoms doctrine is what the confession is teaching. It is a Baptist doctrine, and I'm convinced well, uh, not just Baptist, Baptist not just Baptist, but right, Van Drunen to be sure, uh, Michael Horton, I believe, they and need to become Baptists. they do, uh, <laughs> but we're thankful for those brothers too. Um, anyway, uh, I believe that that is the way the Confession's teaching. I think it's the way that we should think about this as Baptists. Maybe that's a better way to say it. Um, and I don't think that the dominionist or theonomic or general equity theonomic or whatever one kingdom type stuff fits our covenant theology. It just doesn't match. That too. Yeah. So it is just not true. I appreciate that people in those camps want to be confessional, but in this case, they just aren't. And rather than changing terms and definitions and using words in ways that they were never meant to be used, it's better just to say, I take exception uh, to this part of the, the confession. But it, to, to be clear, yeah. there are means by which you could argue that the magisterial reformers mm-hmm. in some ways look like they endorse something like, mm-hmm. but not definitely not exactly, and not as robustly as Christian Reconstruction or Dominionism. Mm-hmm. You know, they they come from. We're talking about the 16th and 17th century. They didn't know. Uh, coming out of Roman Catholicism. Thousands of years, yes. though, of thousands of years Christendom, of church and state integrated. Yeah. Um, you know, the Christian prince being something that they held uh, very firmly to because the... Which was something that developed over time yeah. as well. Yeah. Uh, so it wasn't... That'd be a great topic. It is. Podcast. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Um, Jonathan Lehman's book, How the Nation's Rage, is good. I don't think it's quite as good as Van Drunen's. Um, it's got a lot of good stuff. I, I disagree. Baptist, yes. It is. He's a Baptist, so that's, that's helpful. Um, I disagree here and there with him, but um, by and large... Right, yeah, he's he's not going to hold the same kind of covenant theology that we do. Um, and then uh, there is the Nine Marks Journal that came out in the first uh, quarter of this year, uh, be volume 14 of Church Matters, uh, and it is called A New Christian Authoritarianism, Christian Nationalism, Theonomy, and Magisterial Protestantism. And that is just chock full of really good stuff. Yeah, and the, the, even though... A lot of the brothers who wrote in that, they're all Baptists, I think, but a lot mm-hmm. of them aren't going to be... Uh, Van Drunen has an article in there. Does he? Yeah. Um, so you're going to get some perspective that their biblical theology is the same as ours, but they touch on all the, the relevant topics. Yes. They're talking about things that are happening right now, the arguments, debates that are happening within the you know, reformed community. I believe there's a series of articles where it's like, this topic from the vantage point of a progressive covenantalist and then same topic from the perspective of a, of a 1689 yeah. covenant theology believing Baptist and there's a few of those and so you'll get to see kind of the the difference there but yeah so um, as 
a church that is considering taking this confession of faith on. These are important things. There are plenty of places for us to differ, and we should not see this as some sort of the only thing you can believe is what Jono and Adam or somebody else, one of the elders, says you have to believe in all of the minute details. Um, but there is something to the way that we as Baptists think about this, and there's bigger theological reasons for that. This isn't just coming at this from whatever, you know, not because we come with some political theory and impress it upon our theology. Uh, so this is worthy of your time to think about your faithfulness in some ways. Uh, is going. This is going to matter. Uh, so again, over the next year, you're going to participate in another election cycle. How are you going to do that? How are you going to do it in good conscience? Um, and that's ultimately between you and God. But as a church and as elders, we want to help give you the categories that we think the Bible uh, impresses upon you and also leave you with the Christian liberty that the Bible also gives you.